excited that uh, y'all get to hear this stuff today. I'm so excited to get to interview these two men. Let me tell you what we're going to do today. We're going to have a dialogue. Now, originally when I did this PowerPoint, I was going to have a dialogue with Bill Mounts. But you can't have a dialogue with Bill Mounts, with Dan Wallace in the room, without Bill deferring to Dan on about half the questions. And we learned that last night. Mm-hmm. So... I have grabbed Dan and insisted he sit up here so that he can answer these questions as well. And you get a twofer. You get an interview with two of the leading, not just Greek scholars, but two of the leading translators of your Bible. These are the guys, and there are gals as well, who serve on the committee for the New International Version and are responsible for any problem you have with that translation. <laughs> and they are so excited to get to talk about it today. But I want to go into some more depth. And we're going to start with just some personal information. I found this picture of Bill from when he was a much younger man. And I... That was two years ago. <laughs> my, how time flies. And... Uh, <laughs> Photoshop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Bill and Dan both wind up being these incredible, world-renowned, biblical Greek scholars. And the most bizarre part is they grew up basically together. <laughs> how old were y'all when you met? <clears throat> Well, I was seven and he was zero. <laughs> Two years no, well, was, yeah, my, we grew up on the uh, same street for a little while in West Covina. And my sister used to babysit us. So Dan's much older than I am, about six months. Much older. All right. So he's six months older. And I understand there's a picture floating around of the two of you playing in a sandbox at the age of two together. Yeah. Someday Dan's going to find it and then we're going to read a paper on God's sovereignty. Was there something in the water? How do two fellows from Southern California grow up to become Greek scholars? I think we went our own separate paths. Yeah. All right. So together again, I had not seen Bill in years, and met him again in 1982. Wow. Yeah. So you both independently became the Greek scholars, and then married back up in a sense. I mean, got reacquainted and, and fellowshipped. Got to be careful how you say these things these days. Um, uh, later in life. Is that fair? Yeah, what happened is I was writing my grammar, and I wanted the students to go from my first year to second year smoothly because my experience had been terrible. Because I went to second year, I had to relearn everything because the teachers couldn't get along. And so I needed a second-year grammar that my students could move into slowly because I've known Dan for so long. I went, I think Dan's working on a grammar. So that's when we got together and that all worked. All right. Now, uh, give us a little background. We'll start with you, Bill. Tell us uh, how you came to know the Lord, how you got interested in matters of God. I was born in a a very Christian family, academic family. My dad was a professor and a uh, ultimately a president of the university, and it was just, for me, it's a very steady, became a Christian when I was six, and just pretty much some hiccups along the way, like graduate school, um, but other than that, it's been a pretty smooth journey. And where'd you go to school? 
I went to college at Western Kentucky University, Hilltoppers, and graduated from Bethel. Then I went to Fuller what, Seminary. What's it? Hilltoppers. Hilltoppers. That sounds dangerous. <laughs> well, yeah, if you're a freshman, you have to walk up the hill to classes in the middle of a Kentucky summer. You intimidate all the schools you play against. Hey, we're Hilltoppers. Yeah, that's right. We're that's Beavers. Right. We'll beat you. <laughs> Come on, yeah, I have no comeback on that one. So yeah, I'm no, I just, <laughs> I'm going to move on. And uh, then I went to Fuller, and then in Southern Cal, and I went to Aberdeen University for a Ph.D. And Aberdeen University, your Ph.D. was in what? It's in backgrounds, mostly mystery religions, and trying to assert the uniqueness of Christ as Christianity as opposed to, you know, all the other mystery religions. Where did you learn your Greek? Western Kentucky. Really? Yeah. And my dad had been hired to start a religion department in a secular school, which is an interesting feat, and... Ron Nash was already there, and so the mm. two of them worked together. And uh, it was a, for about 10 years, it was a fabulous place to get an education. Okay. Dan, how did you come to be interested in things of the Lord and Greek in particular? Well, I grew up in a Christian family also, but unlike Bill, I do not come from uh, an academic family. I was the first one in my family to get a college degree. And uh, at four years old, my brother, who's just 18 months older than I am, led me to the Lord after vacation Bible school. And back then, the vacation Bible school teacher said, uh, you better believe in Jesus unless you want to go to hell. Four years old. She's, so that was, that was sufficiently scary that I, uh, I said, Wally, I, I don't want to go to hell. He said, well, here's what you got to do. And he shared the gospel. He was not a Christian. When he turned about 20, I led him to the Lord. So this should be put in the Guinness Book of World Records, but I don't think they'd want to do something like that. <laughs> That's pretty good. How did you get interested in Greek? When I was 16, I, I committed my life to the Lord to go into full-time Christian ministry. And I, I really had just a, a, a radical, it wasn't a conversion, but just a, a deep dedication to the Lord at that time. And I grew up in in Newport Beach, California, and I saw this big billboard on top of a real estate office, an independent real estate guy. It said, Jesus saves. I thought, oh, this is a guy I want to meet. So I go in and I talk to him, and I found out that he had some New Testaments in a modern translation that he was selling dirt cheap. And he said, if you buy a box load of these, you can uh, buy each one for 25 cents. So this is 1969 money, so it would be $500 today, I think. Um, So I bought a box, and then I'd start driving up and down Coast Highway, pick up hitchhikers, share the gospel, and give them a New Testament. And every few weeks, I'd come back to this real estate office and uh, get another box and keep doing this. Well, every time I came back there, he and I would start talking about the New Testament, and he said, now, I want you to notice that this passage proves that Jesus is not God. He was an Aryan that had a Jesus Saves billboard, <laughs> and I thought, I, I, didn't, I knew nothing, but um, he kept showing me passage after passage, and I, I was confused, and I thought, if I'm going to dedicate my life to Jesus Christ, I want to make sure he's worth it. And I felt, I've got to look at other translations, but just looking at other translations told me 
Well, there's this one opinion, there's this other opinion, and so I started taking Greek in college also, and I got my first four years of Greek in, in college. All right, so you started taking Greek in college because you wanted to know the difference in translations, and you wanted to know whether or not why these passages said, and I'm only saying this because they were playing with your mic, and I want to make sure everybody heard. The fellow was with the Jesus save sign said Jesus was not Lord, God, and so, and he would show you passages, and you're trying to parse through all of this. Right. So for me, to learn Greek was due to a spiritual crisis, and I've never been able to separate the two. My academic learning has uh, always been tied to my walk with the Lord. All right. Now, you teach at Dallas Theological Seminary um, today. I mean, not today, but it's your current uh, teaching position. Um, what academics uh, got you to where you are? Where did you go to school? I went to uh, Biola University, which is a Christian school out in L.A., and now it's a fine school. Then it was pretty mediocre. But I latched on to an excellent professor, and even mediocre schools can have... Can you all hear him? No, they can't hear, Brent. Is there something you can do about it? Tell him what? Oh, he said, keep going, <laughs> so that people can't okay, hear can you. Can I just leave this on? Here. Sorry. Oh, that was hearable. Is, is this better? Can you hear me yeah. now? Yeah. All right. We okay. Don't you, start you, over, do we, Mark? Yeah, yeah. So no, what's your name? <laughs> no. Um, uh, if you would, uh, uh, you went to Biola, Bible yeah. Institute of Los Angeles. She said at the time was a mediocre school. But had um, a couple of really, really good professors, and my Greek professor was absolutely superb. And uh, who he, was that? Uh, Harry Sturz. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, cool. I dedicated my grammar to his yeah. memory, you know. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I really was anti-educational. I, I went through college except for one unit of English literature. My dad paid for my school, and I said, I don't need to finish. I'm, I'm going to be a pastor. And uh, that lasted about a year. Um, and my dad was just, he, he didn't squawk about it, but I mean, I'm the first one in the family to get a college degree, and it was one unit. So finally I decided, I don't know enough really to shepherd this flock, so I decided to go to seminary. And I had to get that one unit finished. It was English literature. So I went back to Harry Sturz, my Greek prof, and I said, if I translate Aesop's fables into English, then read it, will that count as a unit of English literature? <laughs> Yeah, sure. So I got some more Greek and called it English. And then went to Dallas Seminary for graduate school studies, and uh, both for my master's and my Ph.D. And I've uh, had some sabbaticals in uh, Munster, Tübingen, Germany, uh, Cambridge, England, Athens, and other places. All right. Well, in that regard, I've pulled up a picture of, of one of your Greek books, Bill, Basics of Biblical Greek, over 200,000 copies mm -hmm. sold. Yeah. That's pretty incredible for a Greek book. It, it's actually half a million now. It's half a million? Yeah. It's crazy. How, how, wow. So, I mean, that's really incredible. Yeah, it's, it really is, is, is surprising. So, what caused you to write it? I'm an organizer. And when I was learning Greek, everything was taught as exceptions. And I kept seeing the same patterns 
of quote exceptions. He said, well, if there's a pattern, you know, double lambdas in the present, single lambdas in the errors kind of stuff. And I just said, there's got to be a better way to do it. So I just started organizing. And my syllabus became longer than the textbook I was using. And I finally said, I, I need to write this out. So I just, I, I'm not, unlike Dan, I'm not a natural linguist. Languages are hard for me. So I wrote a different kind of grammar for other students that find languages hard and uh, simplified it, reduced memory, and it took off. Wow. And, and were you teaching Greek at the time? Yeah, uh, I've always been teaching Greek. Okay. Now, Dan, you've told us how you learned Greek the first time, but you learned Greek a second time. Uh, do you mind sharing that with us? No, that's fine. Um, I, I Talk loud. Even louder than I am now? Oh, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm, they can't hear you. So I, I started learning Greek as a sophomore in college, and then I was teaching Greek when I, before I got my doctorate. I taught for four years at graduate school and then continued after that. In 1997, I contracted encephalitis, and almost immediately it wiped out most of my memory. Uh, virtually everything about all the languages I had learned. I forgot my wife's name. I uh, didn't know my name a couple of times. Didn't know one of my boys' names. Didn't know who the president was. I mean, just, keep, keep your voice up. It, 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 it wiped out so much. I okay. ended up in... Uh, Five different hospitals. Mayo Clinic finally saved my life. Come on, we're going to change this out because oh. we got to hear this. This this is glorious. So do I, I, do I turn the other one off? Now you got it. I, okay. Yeah, the other one they, is. They've got that figured out. Okay. Yeah, they got it. So uh, I was in in a wheelchair for a year, and I decided, well, I guess I've just got to relearn this stuff, and so I. I'm in a wheelchair, and I figured, well, it's time to rebuild my Hebrew. So I went into the first-year Hebrew class, and on the first day, the professor put up the alphabet. Now, I'd had years of Hebrew. Uh, I was a, a major in Hebrew as well as a double major in, in Greek in, in seminary. And so he puts up the alphabet, and I recognized all the letters except for Lamed. Why I didn't recognize? This is 25 years after I'd started learning Hebrew. Um, I don't know. But then he put up Genesis 1 with just the consonants. Hebrew has vowel points that looks like Morse code, kind of little dots and dashes under the letters or over the letters. And uh, he put up unpointed Hebrew text with just the consonants of Genesis 1. And I'm just reading along just fine. And there's a lamed in there. So there's, there's gaps in my mind that it was strange things. I had just gotten my grammar published in 96, and that took me 17 years of work to do that. It's the follow-up after Bill's grammar. It's um, a little, little bigger than Bill's. It's 875 pages. And because of that, more students know Greek cuss words <laughs> because their spouses were saying, oh, you've got to read through Wallace again. And they would come up with things to say about my grammar. So it's, it's been a great doorstop. But I wrote that. I finished it the year before after 17 years of work. And then I forgot most of what was in there. And so I'd read a passage. I'm actually teaching second-year Greek the next fall. And I'd read a passage, and then I said, what is this guy trying to say? Oh, this guy is me. <laughs> and, and then other places I said, oh, now that's really good. Very. Oh, I shouldn't be saying that. I'm bragging. You know, so. and, and to this day, there's sections that 
uh, I kind of draw a blank on. Did I did I really write that? Hmm. So it's not all back yet, but okay. I'm still working on it. We're going to shift gears because in a minute we're going to get to some texts, but I want to lay out one more thing first. I want to talk about uh, your work in Bible translations. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Bill, we'll start with you. You started out, the first English translation you had a, a good role in was the English Standard Version. Mm-hmm. Is that right? The ESV? Yeah. And tell us how that came about and what your role was. My role was I was chair of the New Testament. And I was running the Greek program at Gorn-Conwell Seminary, and Wayne Grudem called and said, do you want to be part of a new translation? And I'd never really done a lot of that kind of translation before, so um, (laughs) not knowing what was involved, I said yes. And so we did that for 10 years, and then the ESV was not intended to be updated. It has been updated once, but there was no ongoing committee. So about three years after that, and I was just talking to my wife, Rob, and I said, I really miss translation, but there's no place for me to go. The next day, this is God's providence, the next day I got a letter from Doug Moo asking me to come on the NIV committee as a, quote, friendly critic. They thought I would want to turn the NIV into the ESV, which I definitely did not want to do. And uh, so I've been on since 2010. Uh, you've been on for two years now? Three. Three years now. So that's kind of what happened. It was a great answer to prayer. Okay, and, and in that regard, I thought we would talk about some passages of Scripture, talk about some Greek, talk about uh, the translations and why they're different, and I'm hitting these guys cold. They do not know the passages that I have pulled up. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, I'm, getting, I'm getting my Bible with that introduction. <laughs> Um, but these are, are ones that, uh, you know, I, I didn't pull out the hard Lubbock stuff. I've got just basic stuff that they're not going to have any trouble with. So let's start with the Greek. Um, I have tried to describe for better or for worse in this class when we've talked about various things of Greek, that Greek words kind of wear a sign around their neck. Mm-hmm. And that sign is one that can be in front of them or behind them or sometimes both. And it will be a sign that says, here's the kind of speech I am. Here's Mm -hmm. where I fit into a sentence. It's just sort of my convenience. So because of that, I've put up here, some words will have an ending that lets you know they are the subject Mm -hmm. of the sentence, right? Now, we've got people of all ages who watch this. We've got people of all languages who watch this. We've got people watching from the Philippines, from Germany, Hmm. all tuned in right now. So I want to always start with the basic, and then we'll build up. So basic, what is a subject in a sentence? The subject is who or what is doing the action of the verb. So if I say, I am sitting here, the subject is? I. All right. You are teaching the class. The subject is you. You. All right. Now, in Greek, the subject of a sentence typically is going to be in what we would call the nominative case. Mm -hmm. Fair? I mean, sometimes it's embedded in verbs. There's lots of other things. But generally, you will have what's called the nominative case. That's fair? All right. Here's your statement out of your grammar. Uh Uh-oh. 
You said, word order is employed especially for the sake of emphasis. And we're going to pause for a moment. Uh, The class is aware from being in here and putting up with me that I'll talk a lot about emphasis in Greek because in English we get emoticons, we get exclamation marks, we get bold, we get underlined, we get circled, we get highlighted. Lots of ways to do emphasis in English. Mm -hmm. Greek had lots of ways. One of the principal ones was word order, right? Mm -hmm. In other words, give us, well, you say it here. Generally speaking, when a word is thrown to the front of the clause, it's done so for emphasis, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Okay, next sentence you're going to need to help on. When a predicate nominative is thrown in front of the verb by virtue of word order, it takes on emphasis. Can you explain what a predicate nominative is, please? I'm I'm wondering if I had encephalitis. I have no recollection of writing that second sentence. I should not have written it. I'm sitting here, why did I say that? Um, verbs are generally words of action. Uh, it takes the subject and then there's an action that directs it to the direct object. So, uh, Bill likes Dan. Okay, so right. Bill's doing Bill, the liking. Hold on, we're going to do this. Oh, for those people things are so see. cool. Bill likes Dan. I do not like that sentence. Okay. Um, <laughs> Bill hit the ball. You want me to do okay. that one? Or Bill hit Dan. That'd be fun. Bill hit Dan. Oh, I like that. I like that. Bill, Bill hit Dan. That's, that's hit. Yeah, that, Dan. That's, that's to make up for what he did to me when I was two. Dan called Mark. <laughs> and Mark sued Bill. Mark <laughs> sued Bill. No, 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 you're going to sue the manufacturer of whatever I used to hit Dan with. Yeah, yeah, that's okay, true. Sorry. This okay. class is getting interesting now. Like <laughs> yeah. Now we're okay. cooking with peanut oil. So, <laughs> so verbs are words of action that take the action from the subject to the direct object. So Bill hit Dan. So these um, are the verbs. Yeah, those are the verbs. And But there are other kinds. You call them statives. Okay, so there are other verbs, state of. The main one is the verb in English, I am, is, are, were, and all those different forms. Because of the meaning of the verb, there's no motion from the subject to a direct object. So if you speak properly, at least in this year, you say, it is me, and you say, it is I. Because is is, in essence, drawing an equal sign between the it and the I. Or, I am he. I don't say, I am him. You say, I am he. And so the M is drawing an equal sign, and so you can't put what follows the verb in what's called the accusative case. That's what a predicate nominative is. So a predicate nominative, if we're going to take a verb, let's use your easy verb of is. Now, if we are going to say, um, Bill is, give me a predicate nominative. Being sued. <laughs> <laughs> Let's keep something to one word. Bill is 
A scholar. A scholar. Well, thank you. Appreciate that. Well, these are made-up sentences. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bill. Don't ever write a book with a cousin. That's all I can say is just don't ever. Bill is a scholar. In Greek, if we're talking about what sign or, or what placard these words would have on them to help us identify mm-hmm. where they belong in the sentence, Bill is the subject. Is that right? Yep. So it would be in the nominative case. True? Yep. But here, instead of a a verb like hit or something Mm -hmm. that transfers action, because this verb is just an equal sign, in Greek would this, what in English we might even consider a direct object, would this be in the same subject case as a nominative? Yeah, would be nominative. And that's called a predicate nominative because it's at the end of the verb. Is that right? Yeah, you, you can divide sentences into halves, and the second half is the predicate, which is the verb and what follows it. So, All right. Mark, so, I need to correct your English. In English, we would not call that a direct, direct object, object yeah. unless we skip junior high school. I'm just checking on your education. You yeah, yeah. I, 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 look, my wife's already corrected this. I saw her make a note remind Mark. Um, <laughs> We're there, right. and, and that's why we say he and him, and I, I got it. All right, so Bill is a scholar. Now, let's use something else. Let's take a passage like I've got here. Um, put it back over here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Yeah. I want to take that last phrase, kaitheos ein halagos. And the word was God. And y'all, I'm going to stand up. Y'all don't have to stand up, but I'm going to point to some things. First of all, this, what looks like an N and a V is actually a long E with an N sound. Okay, so it's ain. Um, but within the framework of that, what is that verb meaning? That the, give us the meaning of that verb. Was. Hmm? Was. Was. It's if, your if, verb. if I know what you're pointing at, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, 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 you do. Was. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. So we've got theos, which means what? God. Good. And ha- logos, which means the word. And so the Greek says, and God was the word. But your translation says, and the word was God. Now, what are, what are we missing here? Explain to us the significance of this. Put it together in a package. It, Dan's written extensively on this. I'll let him do it. In Greek, the subject is we can, off. Yeah. Off? No, you're there. You're there now. Oh. Go back. Maybe I should just shout so he can hear yeah, me. Yeah, shouting would help. No, I, I won't do it. In Greek, the subject is typically between a subject and a predicate nominative. There are five different ways to tell if you have the subject, but the keys are if one of the two words has the article, the word the, in front of it, and the other does not, the word with the is the subject. If one of the two is a proper name, it's the subject, and if one of the two is a pronoun, it's the subject. Word order, although there are certain restrictions in word order, Greek has much greater flexibility than English to put these things in whatever order they want. And so, 
ha-logos, the word, is the subject, but thaos is thrown in front of the verb and in front of the subject to put emphasis on it. Now, it's typically translated, the word was God, which is a bit of an over-translation. Because early in the verse, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Uh, maybe you can point that up to them, that the word thaon has ton in front of it. The word was with God. What this is really saying, if we convert this into the persons of the Trinity, is in the beginning was the second person of the Trinity. And the second person of the Trinity was with the first person of the Trinity. And the word was now not the same person, but thaos does not have an article in front of it, and it's thrown forward in the sentence to put an emphasis on it in terms of quality or essence. The uh, New English Bible has, I think, what's probably the best translation of this. What, the, what God was, the word was, is how they do it. This is saying that the word has the same essence as the Father, but is not identical in person. It's the shortest, the briefest possible way that John could say there are at least two members to the Godhead, and they are distinct persons. Four words, and he does it. Okay. Bill, do you want to add to that? Well, the, the other thing is that um, the article, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the verse the Jehovah Witness uses says that there's no the God, so it's a God. The word was a God. And the reason the article is missing in front of theos is that it's to help differentiate subject from predicate. So it's Greek nouns are definite in and of themselves, unlike English. So uh, this doesn't say a God, but the article, the the before theos, that you normally would expect, has been dropped, not because Jesus is a God, but because he's differentiating subject from predicate. I get that right? Kind of? I got confused on what you were saying. All right, so I'm going to break it apart for a moment, because if Dan got confused, then every, yeah. then, then, then it's a good chance to talk about it some. Or may, maybe this is just one of his lapses. You know, it could one be. Of, one of the empty could spots. be. I'll always claim that, yeah. yeah. All right, so in English, we have an article that can be a definite article, and we have another one that's an indefinite article. So before words, we can use the, and that's a definite article. Mm-hmm. We can use a or an, and that's an indefinite article. It's the difference between I go to a university, could be anyone, or I go to the university when you're talking about a specific one like Texas Tech. And so, you know, if you just want to say I go to a university of Texas, it could be anyone. But if you say I go to the university of Texas, you mean Texas Tech. And... (laughs) Are these fighting words yeah. in Texas? Okay. Yeah, if Sam Harless is in here. And uh, so, so the is, is a definite because it's, it's pointing to something definite. Now, in Greek, they do not have the indefinite article, a or an. All they have is a definite article. And the definite article sometimes is specifying something specific. Sometimes it's just used with characteristics and traits like honor and things like that, if I recall correctly. It's been a long time for me. Um, but, but sometimes it's, it's drawing a specific distinction. And sometimes the absence of the article may mean something notable. 
with that as a background, what you're saying here is if you look at the whole sentence, and I'll stand up here so y'all can see it. This is what Dan was talking about. It starts out in beginning, in the beginning, was, it's that same word that's down here, was, and it's got this O with a rough breathing on it, a ho sound or a ha. They, in Lubbock, we made them all long O's. Ha, Lagos, was the word. Y'all tracking? And then it says, and the, it's got that same the, the definite article, the word was, again, same word was, with the God. Now, this is the in a different form. It's the same definite article, but it's in a different form because now God is a direct object. And, and here God doesn't have the article. And God, does it mean a God? Why does it not have an article? And God was the, we come back to, word. Now, with that, Bill or Dan, give your explanation again. Dan's going to correct me on something, and then I'll explain. Okay. The, the state of verbs to be, I am, those kinds of verbs where you have a subject, a predicate, nominative, they can be the same as an equal sign. That is, A equals B, B equals A. Yeah. But just as frequently, in, in fact, more frequently, what it means is that A is a part of B. Yeah. So I could say Bill is a man. He's not the only man out there, but he belongs to the category called man. To say the word was God without the article for thaos means the word belongs to that very, very small group called God. There's three persons, one being. And this particular construction where you have the predicate nominative before the, the verb occurs in places like 1 John 4, 8, God is love. That does not mean love is God. Yeah. It means one of the characteristics that God has is love. And you've got, uh, I think one of the most fascinating ones is Mark fifteen thirty nine, where the centurion, at the death of Jesus, says, truly this man was, was it a son of God, the son of God, or God's son? And I think God's son is, is the best translation. He's speaking about the quality of, of what he is. Jehovah's Witnesses get this wrong because they take a, something that somebody after about three or four weeks of Greek would get <laughs> right. And so uh, they think because Thaos does not have the article, it can't be definite. But then you can show them place after place after place yeah. where Thaos does not have the article and is definite. This kind of construction, though, by throwing the predicate nominative in front of the verb, uh, it occurs in a sense that that word that's thrown in front of the verb is almost never indefinite. The very fact that it's thrown forward me makes it qualitative. Words can be indefinite, a thing. They can be definite, the thing. Or they can be qualitative. And you have the same construction in John 1.14. The word became flesh. You have flesh first without the article. It doesn't mean the word became a flesh. It doesn't mean the word became the flesh. 
it means now the second person of the Trinity belongs to humanity, has the essence, the quality of being human. And it echoes, is it fair to say, John 1, 1? Intentionally so. Intentionally so. So the logos, the word belongs to God or is is within God, and the word now is within humanity, within flesh. Mm -hmm. This is the difference between first year and second year. I'm dealing with people drowning, and so you have to simplify things. So maybe I should draw the equal sign as one of those things we use in logic, which is kind of the same. Kind of equal. The the big thing here for the the simple way to, I would say, first year Greek to say this for the next time a Jehovah Witness knocks on your door. We have Jehovah's Witnesses who watch this. Okay, great. Then here here you go. Here you go. Proper names, like Iesus, usually are preceded by the definite article. So Jesus is normally Ha-Iesus. Not always, but it's usually Ha-Iesus, Ha-Petros, Ha-Paulus. The word for God, Theos, is treated basically the same way. It's normally, and you probably know the numbers, but it's normally Ha-Theos. Dan loves numbers. Um, But that's what makes us remarkable that the Ha isn't there in front of Theos. And so if you know Greek, you know that the article is not there for Dan's reason. Uh, What happens in Jehovah's Witnesses is they look at it and they say there's no article in front of it. And so the conclusion they come to is that it's a God, but that's not why there's no, that's why there's not an article. And it's not why there's not an article in front of it. Okay. I'd like to add one other thing. We have in our audience Ed Komaszewski sitting on the front row, and he's co-authored some books with me, and he's co-authored a book with Rob Bowman called Putting Jesus in His Place. It's the finest defense of the deity of Christ in print. And uh, Ed, can you just stand up and look <laughs> yeah. Rick Wave your hand, Ed. So those who might wonder and whether he, or not. He's, he deals in great length with this passage and all the passages that have some questions about them, about the deity of Christ. So those who are wanting to study this in depth or discuss this in depth or Jehovah's Witnesses who may be interested in this, you would recommend them reading, putting Jesus in his place, which I'm sure we can order off Amazon. Fair? Absolutely. All right, let's move on because I don't want to get too bogged down here, and I may have already done that, but that's my fault. I want to now talk about a little bit different in Bible translations, and this requires us to put another placard up here. Um, There are other kinds of nouns other than nominatives with other signs. Mm -hmm. One of those signs is the genitive case, which every first-year Greek student will learn. And if the nominative case is the case where the subject is, in simple terms, one of the most basic uses of the genitive, recognizing that there are gazillions of uses with gazillions of different names that you don't even want to get into unless you're really having trouble going to sleep, the key word, or a key word, when you're first seeing the genitive, if you're not lucid on all of the things, is of or from. Fair? All right. So here's the passage. Everybody gets a Christmas card. Everybody gets a Christmas card. Oftentimes it says in the King James Version, quoting it, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Anybody ever seen that on a Christmas card? It's there all the time. Okay, if you get these guys' translation, which I put over here, it says, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace 
to those on whom his favor rests. Or if you're looking at the ESV, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. Basically the same type of translation as the NIV. So you've got the NIV and the English Standard Version over here. But you've got the King James Version over here. Now, I let my prejudice out by putting the New International Version and the English Standard Version on the right as in, these are right, and the King James Version is not right. It's left. But it's helpful to understand how translations come up with these differences and why the difference is there. And the key lies in this passage. Here it is in Luke. Doxa, well, keep reading all the way down, and you get down to the end to Eudokios. That eudokios is the key word. And it's a question of what sign that word is wearing. Gentlemen, you want to explain your translation? And the, the difference <laughs> in uh, manuscripts? Yeah, this is a good example of the whole role of text criticism. That I imagine you've talked about some. And that uh, there's differences among our Greek manuscripts, the copies that were made through the centuries... And some of them have eudokias, and others have eudokia. There's no S sound at the end. And so it's, 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 a, it's a manuscript difference that evokes the two different translations. So if there's no S at the end, then this eudokia means what? <clears throat> Is it nominative? would be nominative and it would fit the King James translation. And that's what the King James does. It means good and and it means peace and goodwill here and they then they put it among men or people, right? Toward them, I guess is the way they do their in there. Now, you've got glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests and the difference is just whether or not that S sound is at the end of the word. Okay. That turns it into a genitive. Explain that to us, why that makes a difference. Well, it's just the difference in meaning between the two different cases and, the, and how it's related to the previous, wor- previous words. So if it's a genitive, then... I've already gotten the highest and a peace among men. <laughs> well, I'm going to go with the NIV. <laughs> <laughs> That's just, it's just how the genitive functions in that sentence. That's yeah. what it means. Yeah. The Dan? idea in general is it's, it's peace among or toward people of goodwill, but of his goodwill. Eudokia is a word that often implies in the New Testament God's favor, even though God might not be in the statement. Okay. Yeah. Um, um, all right. We've got time maybe for one more, and then I want to ask you guys some final questions before we go. Here's your last one. Adjectives have a theological importance that is hard to rival. They can modify a noun, and in that event, the adjective is called attributive. Mm -hmm. For example, um, handsome Bill. Uh, The NIV is a good translation. Good, in that (laughs) sense, would be an attributive 
adjective. It modifies the noun, right. translation. It can assert something about a noun. It's a predicate. The get... NIV is good. And in that event, good is just in the predicate position describing the noun. Right. Or it can stand in the place of a noun. How about blessed are the poor in spirit? Yeah. Where you've got the poor, which is an adjective functioning like it's a noun. All right. So with that, here's a difference in your translations that you all know, but you've never thought about. So we're going to put it up there. Matthew 6.13, and the King James says, as we've learned to sing it and say it, this is the our Father who art in heaven, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from oh, evil, <laughs> colon, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever. If you're reading it in the English Standard Version, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, with a footnote. And the footnote says, it might be the evil one. And then if you're reading the NIV, it says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one with a footnote that says it might be from evil. And the key is, <laughs> the key is this um, definite article, the you word the, is making it followed by poneru. And would you gentlemen care to decide who's going to do this one first? <laughs> Well, Bill asked me to write an exegetical insight, I think, on the uh, chapter on adjectives. Yeah. This is the passage I chose to talk about. But I did that so long ago, I can't remember what I said, and I had encephalitis. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> the adjective, paneros, in the genitive case after a pa, it's an adjective that simply means evil. But as soon as you put the article in front of it, and there is no reason to put it here unless it's specifying something specific from the evil. What do you mean the evil? The evil one. And you've got this word used elsewhere, uh, the word evil as the evil one referring to Satan. So I think with the article, which also is in the Greek text behind the King James, uh, it, we should translate it as the evil one. And I want to mention real quickly Bill and I both would agree that the King James is not the best translation available today. It was excellent 411 years ago. But since that time, we have understood Greek a whole lot better. We have earlier manuscripts that help us to understand things better. There's not been one cardinal doctrine that has changed in the last 400 years. The same... Uh, doctrinal statements that you get from the Westminster Confession, Augsburg Confession, all these different uh, denominations and confessions could be based on the King James or they could be based on modern translations. So there's no essential doctrine that has changed between the King James and modern translations. But there are passages that are changed. Mm -hmm. And I would say that modern translations that recognize this means from the evil one are going to be far more accurate than those that don't. If, if I could add, the, uh, the third word from the end, the apa, is a preposition. And normally when you have a preposition and a, and a noun, the article is normally not there. They drop it out usually of prepositional phrases. So when you see the article, the two in there, 
it jumps out at you like, well, that's not normal. Something's going on. So um, the fact that it's there really stresses that it's the evil, meaning the evil one. And in fairness, um, God never promises to deliver us from evil. Evil happens all around us. Right. Uh, he promises to deliver us through the evil. I mean, Daniel wasn't saved from the lion's den. He was saved mm-hmm. through the lion's den. I think this this prayer, the Lord's prayer, reflects back. It's an echo back to Matthew four one, where the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And precisely because he went through things that we can never go through, because of what he has done, he is going to protect us from the evil one. All right. So we do have that promise. Now, sitting on the front row here is Goran Medved. Goran, would you come up for just a moment? (laughs) Uh, This is maybe a surprise to Goran. This is the portable mic, so he gets this. Goran is from Croatia and has just finished overseeing translating the Bible into modern Croatian. And so he's had to deal with these issues, translating it into another language. So my question to you is, first of all, tell them who you are and what you just did, and recognize you've got two minutes to do that, (laughs) and to also tell them uh, how you handled these issues as y'all were working through your translation. Okay. Uh, My name is Goran Medved. Come from Croatia, and uh, I worked on a new Bible translation from uh, 2012 to 2019. So uh, we wanted to produce a Bible t- translation that is in today's language, contemporary Croatian. The first one, actually, that is in uh, contemporary Croatian language. All the translations before that uh, used really high literary language and used tenses that we don't use anymore like aorist and imperfect and so on. So um, we produced this translation that is easy to read and understand, and that was our goal. And we're getting wonderful feedback, and uh, people are writing to us saying that for the first time in their life, they understand certain passages in the Bible. And um, so we are really thankful to God for that. And uh, I worked with a team of people, of course, and... um, we had, um, uh, I served as the editor-in-chief, uh, and now I'm distributing these Bibles all over Croatia and actually teaching people why we have different Bible translations and how to use them and uh, how ours is the best one. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so um, I, had, I had help from a lot of people. Every verse that we translated was checked separately by two uh, experts in Bible translation. So um, I had a lot, actually yeah, a lot of help from the outside. Not, not Didn't have There's to do it all, all on my own. Pro- not bad for a home project. Thank you. And ju- Go ahead. I just have to say it hurts my ears a little bit to, to hear Greek pronounced with an English accent. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, not everybody's from Lubbock. <laughs> Thank you, Gorn. Would you keep Gorn in your prayers? He has a vibrant ministry that is ongoing. And, and um, 
He teaches, he videos, he, he does an amazing set of things. And they're also one country removed from Ukraine. And if you get a chance, you may want to visit with him about that. They're taking in refugees and doing some incredible things. But thank you, Goran, for taking that time. All right, I'm going to hand you back the microphone. And here's what I need from you. You each have one minute. Mm-hmm. Explain why there are great translations and explain why there's no word-for-word translation. Oh, that's easy. One minute each. Go. Great translations are due to the translators looking both at the words, which is only part of translation, and the syntax, the, the structure that they occur in, and the historical and cultural background and the idioms that are used. So if you say uh, God was angry, well, the Hebrew is going to say God's nostrils enlarged. Uh, and uh, you don't want to have a literal translation. I'll let Bill pick up on this. But a literal translation is going to be bizarre. Uh, if you want a word-for-word translation, it will not be English. To say Mary was pregnant or the King James has heavy with child, the Greek says she was having it in the belly. And all of you women who've ever born children know what that means. <laughs> but we're not going to translate it that way. Yeah. Great That's translations it. understand that they, they are trying to reproduce the denotations of the original language and the very best translations also try to pick up the connotations so you get the same feel as well as the same thought of the original. All right. Bill? There's no such thing as a word-for-word translation because that's not the nature of languages. Languages don't... We don't transfer from one word in one language to another word in another language. It's absolutely impossible. The structures, the vocabulary, the grammar of all languages are significantly different. And I'll often challenge people to find a single verse that hasn't been interpreted because it takes interpretation to do this. And there's not a single verse in the NASB, the ESV, or the CSB, or any of these that there hasn't been interpretation happening. You just can't go word for word. And my favorite illustration is I was learning German. I went to Schrebisch Hall, and a lot of the Americans there knew a lot more German than I did. And it was cold one day, and I wanted to say something in German. So I said, well, I say I am cold. So I is ich, am is bin, cold is cold. So I said, ich bin cold. My friends hit the floor, rolling, hysterical laughter. And it took them about a minute to stop laughing at me. And I said, well, those are the words, ich bin cold, I am cold. And they said, do you have an idea what you just said? I went, no, apparently not. He said, you just said you're sexually frigid. And on that note, I think we have run the full course I, I on had, this class. I had to put him off his game just a little. If you want to say I am cold in German, it's something like it is to me cold, SSU mir kalt, or some abbreviated form of that. But languages simply don't go word for word. That's not translation. All right. Would you join me in thanking these gentlemen? <laughs> I like it. And... Uh, uh, Class is done, but let me bless you just a moment. Lord, in the name of Jesus, I pray your blessings on the message that we've been, these words we've been discussing, uh, not just for the class here, but people on the internet and other places. Father, through your spirit, make your word real to us. And thank you for the people throughout the ages who you entrusted with your gospel, who have kept that message alive and shining for us even today. We pray your blessings on them all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.